You're listening to From the Bibliophiles, a science podcast discussing how storytelling succeeds in communicating difficult science concepts. I'm your host and interviewer, Kenna Casberry. If you're a new listener, you can find our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review if you like our show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, like it and share it with your friends. This episode features an exclusive interview with Randy Olson, an award-winning documentary maker. Randy made the critically acclaimed documentary Flock of Dodos, which discusses the public perception of climate change. In this interview, Randy also discusses his relationship with Michael Crichton and how Crichton's work paved a new wave of science communication. Let's listen now. Perfect. Well, I guess I, I want to start with what you brought up in your email as far as what there's no topic like science communication. Right. I'm curious what, what you mean by that. Um, well, that's one of my little shticks, which is um, the term science communication sends the wrong signal because it makes it sound like science is somehow communicated differently than other topics. Um, when in fact, all there is is a set, for the most part, a set of principles of communication that can be applied to the communication of economics, political science, government, politics, sports, science, all of these things. Um, and, and the more that people learn the universality of communication dynamics and realize that science is communicated the same way for the most part as everything else, the better. And it irks me when I get young people contact me saying, I'm a science communicator. I want to be a science communicator. There isn't any science communication. It is not. It's all the same stuff. And it's all narrative structure at its core, which is really, really challenging. And I don't know what these people teach in their science communication programs. But if they're not teaching narrative structure, they're missing the boat. So sure. that's my shtick. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. I think that's great. Do you think that it should be reworded as maybe like, science narrative or something more no with that narrative? no I, th- I think that um it's just a point that people should make and ah. I make it all the time. yeah I, I think it's <clears throat> there's an ele- element of convenience because yeah communication of science would get clunky and annoying but it's just something everybody should keep in mind uh, it's a lot like what i got stuck with my story circles story circles narrative training we i would love to have called it narrative circles but that just didn't have the ring and the breadth and people were like what the hell is that um so sometimes you got to do these things and story circles resonated with everybody. And so it was a much better label, even though technically the focus was on narrative, narrative circles. So you can only push the system so much at a time. Sure. Absolutely. No, that's a really good point, actually, that science is separated with science communication. I hadn't really um, thought about it that okay. way. Okay. Well, speaking of good points, tell me more about who you are and what do you, what do, you do and what is this for or anything? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually, ironically enough, just finished my master's degree in science communication, um, which, you know, my, my background before that is biology and English. So I, I know what you're talking about with narrative structure and writing. And I got into my master's because I wanted to do more science writing itself, not just communication. Um, but I started this podcast because of COVID. I was sitting around and I just wanted to interview science writers about their work and just talk about, you know, the ideas behind their books, how they're communicating the science to people through their books. Um, and it's been a really interesting time. COVID has kind of helped because people are just sitting at home. Um, so I've been able to get some really great authors that I never thought I would be able to get, such as yourself. Yay. 
Yeah, so it, it works out for the best, which is really, really nice. Yeah, no, that's pretty true, too. Everybody's sitting around at home, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I keep... For the course that I'm teaching right now, we keep inviting guests, and that's kind of our philosophy. Is you know, I don't care how famous this person thinks they are. Guarantee you they're spending most of the day sitting around at home bored. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. Well, if it's all right with you, I'll get started with some of the questions I have, and feel free to answer them however you like, not at all, just say skip, sure. whatever. Yeah, Go so um, so the first one I actually wanted you to just talk about kind of your own background, because you have such a unique background of scientist-turned-Hollywood-director and the only other person I can think of that, even though he's not really a scientist, is Michael Crichton, because yes, he was yes. trained to be a Harvard doctor. Oh, all right, so let's stop right there. How much do you know about Michael Crichton? Oh, I, I've done a full podcast episode on Michael Crichton, so I, I, I read his memoir. I, I know him fairly well. Uh-huh. Did you see the article I wrote in January on NCIA about Michael Crichton and the missed opportunity? No, I have not, unfortunately, read that. I will find it, though. That sounds uh-huh. very interesting. Do you know that he became a climate skeptic at the end of his life yes yeah yeah why do you think he did that oh that's a good question actually i'm not i mean i know he in state of fear of course he talks about climate change and skeptics and all that and he's really talking about kind of privatization of science and and universities but i'm not entirely sure the motives behind it fully um, okay, so in that article in January in Encia, um, what I argued was that the motives were that scientists do not listen. And he tried for 25 years with everything he had to get the science community to listen to his incredible insights. And the science people do not listen. They just are going to do what they're going to do. And he finally got fed up. And by about 2000, he just said enough with these schmucks. Um, and went off on his own and just drifted towards the the climate skepticism more out of his own frustration with the science establishment than really out of deep-seated beliefs about uh, climate. Um, in my course, so, in, I mean, this is all interesting if you have read a bit about him. So um, let's just start with a little story of what happened to me, which is in 1992, I was a humble little marine biology professor at the University of New Hampshire, and I made a music video about the uh, Sex Life of Barnacles that won, <laughs> won a bunch of awards and it won an award at the New England Film Festival. And they had as the featured guest speaker, a filmmaker named Martha Coolidge, who at that point in time was kind of the hot indie woman filmmaker. Um, so she gave the big keynote address at the film festival. Then they had a reception afterwards that I went to. I was still marine biology professor living in this completely different world, but kind of determined that it was the time had come where I needed to start being a little more pushy. So finally made my way up to the front of the crowd and told her um, I'm a marine biology professor. And she said, oh, you need to meet my husband here, Mike Backus. He's Michael Crichton's writing partner. Um, <laughs> so Mike and I met that night and the same age, same sense of humor, same everything, bonded instantly. He gave me his number, said, if you're around in L.A., give me a call, you know, show you around town. And that began about, oh, well, it began 28 years now, really close friendship. We're, we're really good buddies. Um and he was my guide into Hollywood. So when I left UNH and entered into film school at USC, he took me out to a lot of social events, things like that, introduced me to people in Hollywood. But most importantly, the first summer film school, I said, the summer is open, what should I do? And he said, number one, I'm going to get you a job as a production assistant on Martha's movie that she was doing with Patrick Swayze at the time. And then number two, I'm going to put you into this acting program um, for Meisner Technique with this 
crazy friend of theirs who's the acting teacher who was utterly brilliant but also mean, aggressive, abusive, um, as the Meisner technique tends to be. So I entered into that course, and that's the opening of the first book, Don't Be Such a Scientist. The first paragraph is a paragraph of profanity from her sure. on the first night as she kicked me out of the class. Um, but Mike was the guy that guided me into that. And then a whole million things went on, and by 2007, I'd made Flock of Dodos, and then was getting started on Sizzle, a global warming comedy, and finally got Mike to put me in touch with Crichton. And so through email, he and I traded emails for about four months, and it was a fascinating set of emails, and he had published State of Fear by then. Um, he died a year later after the, right. those discussions. But interesting thing was just a few months ago, I had Mike as a guest in my ABT framework course. And one of the questions that came up, somebody said, what do you think Michael Crichton would have to say about global warming now? And he instantly said he'd accept it. You know, he was a data-driven guy and he felt in 2001, 2002, that the climate community was reaching beyond what the data say, that they were going with models that really weren't that well-founded, yada, yada. He did a lot of work and he, he read the entire IPCC reports and really dissected them. He was a smart, smart, smart guy, smarter in the broadest definition of smart if you add together both emotional and intellectual intelligence, smarter than anybody in the science world. There's never been anybody from the science world that's grasped American media and its dynamics anywhere close to the way that, that Crichton did. He wasn't just a contender in Hollywood. He was the top of the mountain by 1994, the only guy to ever have the simultaneous number one book, movie, and TV show. So he was a guy that, that um, Steven Spielberg and Michael Ovitz and all the top power players of Hollywood literally and figuratively looked up to. You know, he was six mm. foot ten. But he had command of the media system. And then he set about trying to offer this advice to the science world. And they did not effing listen to anything he had to say. And in 1999, he gave the keynote address at the AAAS meeting that he gave the the speech that he gave the transcript of it is on the AAAS website the science magazine website you can read it to this day addressing these problems that were clearly coming down the pike because he was a futurist this is what he did he saw things that technology and science was bringing us and he tried to write these uh, cautionary novels and so in that speech he tried to help with the coming tidal wave of misinformation and anti-science attacks he could see it coming he hadn't jumped ship yet into the climate um, the climate skeptic movement but he knew and in that speech he offered it all up and when the speech is over they started the Q&A as my buddy Mike has told me all none of the questions were about the substance of what he was there speaking about all this expertise he was offering all the questions were how can we make another Jurassic Park movie, movie to encourage kids to go into science uh, and this is the absence of broad thinking that the science community suffers from. It's all through my books. Don't be such a scientist. Don't be so literal minded. Don't be so cerebral. I mean, all you can do is keep trying to lay this stuff out in hopes that they will listen someday. But as Peter Kariba, who was the chief scientist in Nature Conservancy, when he reviewed my book in science in 2009, as he said in his review, the one problem with this book that Randy Olson has written is he failed to address the number one problem of scientists, which is their inability to listen. And, you know, maybe some of them are getting better with time. I think Alan Ald has done a good thing in helping the science world by introducing and validating improv training. Mm -hmm. um, that's helped me a lot because I've been working with the Groundlings Improv 
comedy theater for 20 some years and having them come and do workshops and overnight the skepticism level plummeted in the science world towards improv you know up until all the till they named the Alan Alda Center uh, I had to deal with all kinds of people at university improv what is that but and then overnight oh that's the cool thing that Alan Alda's doing wow he's a celebrity we think celebrities are awesome blah 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 so you know it, it was a good thing that they did I benefited from it but scientists don't listen and so they they don't listen and they really don't like to be self-examinatory either they don't appreciate it when somebody writes a book called don't be such a scientist and takes a critical mind to them the same mind that i got trained in the science world to be critical analytical thinker and then when you turn it on the science community man you get ostracized and you know nobody wants to talk to you and that's that's part of what goes on sure no absolutely that makes sense and and your book does a really good job of illustrating that as far as just examples and and things to do i'm curious what was kind of the research process like for writing don't be such a scientist did you end up finding that there was a lot more material than you were expecting perhaps uh no there was no research at all you know i mean it's when you've lived a whole life and done all that sort of stuff and been talking about it for 25 years you don't really have to do a lot of research you just kind of sit down and do it um although that said um i did find myself writing some or reading some things that i hadn't read one of the, the best things that i did was robert mckee's book story came out in 1997 Big Fat, it's kind of the definitive book on, on story and screenwriting for Hollywood. And he's the guru of, of screenwriting instruction. And I had bought a copy of it and yet never cracked it open until finally as I sat down writing that book. And then I, you know, I said, I wonder if there's anything interesting in this book. And lo and behold, McKee's Triangle is in there. It's so incredibly important to all mm-hmm. humanity and our culture. It's so important that I brought it back in my Houston, we have a narrative book in a section titled Back by Unpopular Demand because I'd gone through it in the first book and nobody would ever cited it and I don't know that anybody's even still cited it that you know some of these things really hard to get across and yet I can tell you from doing this stuff that this is the heart and soul of, of human culture is this narrative structure and that arc plot and mini plot and anti plot and McKee's triangle that he goes through there that's it that's the bullseye of how our culture is built um but it's really tough it's it's so analytical and as a result mckee's book um it's kind of funny because you know that's like a really analytical part of his book which i guarantee you less than one percent of hollywood screenwriters who have bought his book and read it have ever processed what he was talking about in there it's really kind of a little bit more towards the intellectual side but it's very very cool and so it's this idea that there's a singular form for stories and narrative structure that is the ideal form and the closer everybody gets to that the better the chance are things reaching mass audiences and persisting over time sort of like space and time parameters um but it's it's kind of too analytical for lots of folks sure yeah no that makes sense and and that is really important i'm curious as far as because you do have it in houston we have a narrative and oh and also and don't be such a scientist do you think that scientists would be better off being trained in more storytelling and writing classes possibly for part of their education to be better communicators? Um, the, the important distinction that, you know, it, as we were talking about earlier, you can only push it so far, right. but the distinction is between narrative and story. And I am not a big fan on storytelling for scientists. I know there are all these people running their workshops on storytelling for scientists. I don't think that's a worthwhile 
thing so much for scientists. There are downsides to storytelling, but narrative structure is the dynamo that's at the core of storytelling, at the core of logic, the core of reason, the core of the scientific method, the core of everything. It's how we communicate. And it's the basic problem solution dynamic. The whole brain is built around that. Why wouldn't it be? Every creature on the planet spends all day, every day trying to solve problems. So why wouldn't you expect the problem solution dynamic to be at the epicenter of every single thing, which is what it is. And so you see it going back to the way we've communicated from the beginning of time. It's all the things that last are all built around problem solution dynamics. So that's where the science world needs to focus their energy and realizing that one application of this problem solution dynamic is storytelling. Another one is the scientific method. Another one is argumentation. So my good buddy, Jerry Graff, author of They Say, I Say with his wife, Kathy Birkenstein. Um, I had him in my movie, Flock of Dodos, in 2006, and we've become good buddies over the years, really, really good buddies. He was one of the reviewers for the Houston book. And his book, They Say, I Say, this is, see, these are some of the cultural divides that are just really stunning and frustrating that I give these talks and there could be 500 scientists in the audience and I'll say, I'll put the cover of that book, They Say, I Say, up there. And how many of you have ever heard of this? Not a single hand goes up. But then if it's a mixed group of half humanities people and half science people, all the humanities people raise their hand because that book has sold over 2 million copies for Norton Press. It's used in multiple courses in the humanities for English literature, comparative literature, rhetoric, all these different courses. And yet it doesn't filter into the science world at all. And it should because science is all about argumentation. That's what you do as a scientist. You gather some data and you write it up and you make the argument. You know, there, there's this idealistic belief that, oh, science is just presenting facts and the facts speak for themselves. No, I'm sorry. It's the hypothetical deductive process where you pull together these ideas and you winnow things down using logic and reason and deduction so that you don't spin your wheels inductively just measuring everything on the planet. So it's all argumentation in the science world and it ought to be more widely recognized and that narrative is at the core of it all. And that's part of what I argued in the book, in the Houston, we have a narrative book. Do you think that um, with uh, the younger scientists coming out today, do you think they're more narrative focused than older scientists with things like the internet or just how connected no. we are? Nope, nope, nope. I mean, your listeners won't like to hear this. But no, that's okay. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, say, I say a lot of things that people just don't want to hear and then, you know, it's politically incorrect or whatever, but... There is a reverse discrimination element that goes with narrative, which is that people get better at it with age and young people aren't very good at it. And they like to think they are, but on the average, they're not. And social media only makes it worse because it's largely non-narrative. I showed that in one of the appendices there for Twitter in the Houston book. And what we've learned through our Story Circles training program that we began coming off the book there in 2015 is the idea that... Um, from the beginning, lots of people said, oh, my God, narrative training, you know, um, that's about communication. And you're going to find that you can't teach old dogs new tricks. You know, the old people aren't going to get what you're talking about. But these young kids today, they're so good with communication. Um, wrong, 100 percent wrong. What we've learned through experience is older people are better with narrative because they've got a context. Young people don't have a context yet. They haven't lived enough life. You have to have this experience and knowledge and the ability to shape it over time. And I think there's multiple factors at work. So one of which is that they don't have enough experience to put it into context. Another, which I think there are 
developmental elements that someday will be studied and, and documented. The brain's not through developing all of its neurons until age 25 or so. I think that there are neurons involved with narrative that just aren't there yet as, as undergraduates. And as a result, we tried to run story circles a number of times with undergraduates or first semester graduate students, and they found it boring. They found it useless, worthless. They got angry. We learned your three words and but therefore on the first day. Why do we have to keep coming back session after session and just doing more stuff with these same three words? That's what you get with young people because they don't have any experience yet. When you get to older people, it starts to just hit them deeply like, oh my goodness, if I'd known this and but therefore structure five years ago when we put together this proposal that was such a failure or when we ran this program that was so disorganized, we could have you know, put together a narrative. So they've got a context to apply this in. And one of the coolest little data sets for that realization was we ran story circles um, about three years ago at use uh, with UC Davis graduate students at the, at the Bodega Marine Lab. We ran three circles there and they did a great job with it. They thoroughly enjoyed it. And when they were done with the 10 sessions, I went up there and shot an interview, um, a, a video interviewing about five or six of them. And the woman who organized it all, she said, we're going to have you interview this one person who I got to warn you, she didn't like your training. She thought it was, you know, largely a waste of time, but she was only in her second year. And I think, you know, if you give her time, she'll eventually concede that she just wasn't far enough along the line. All the other students that we interviewed were in their fifth and sixth year. They'd already written proposals, already given presentations, already written papers. They'd already dealt with this narrative structure stuff and found how challenging and frustrating it can be. And as they began to learn the ABT, they were like, oh, wow, this is what, you know, we should have put more time into. So they were tremendous. But sure enough, that woman in her second year, we did the interview and she it was mostly complaints. You know, I found it kind of boring and useless. I didn't see what I related. And then halfway through, she finally got around to it. By the way, you know, I'm still just at the beginning of my second year, and I, I don't even know how to write a paper yet. I've never given a talk, blah, 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 blah. So if you don't have any context, this narrative stuff, just a lot of it blows by you, and you don't see the relevance of it. Um, it, it in a similar way, this just hit me recently. I, I always used to think, like, there are famous little expressions or, you know, catchphrases or whatever. Um, for example, a penny saved is a penny earned. I, I grew up as a kid. That was something that adults would say as a fam favorite saying or whatever it is. Um, and I used to think about that expression. You know, if you're a kid, that means nothing to you. But if you were an adult who lived through the Great Depression, who, you know, the adults when I was a kid, most of them had, um, that that one little expression said everything. And, you know, you heard that and it resonated so deeply. Like, oh, my God, I remember when you find a penny on the street and it really meant something a penny saved is a penny earned so if you don't have this background and context then a lot of stuff just blows by you what's the solution the only solution is experience it's all experiential if you really want to communicate effectively you just got to gather a ton of experience do these things one of the things i like to talk about was when i first started making films as a professor of marine biology having no idea how to make a film and there biology department university of new hampshire i went and bought some books typical thing an academic goes and does and one of the books was titled um how to make a film and you open it up and the first page it said if you really want to learn how to make a film you need to put this book down go get a camera and start making a film and trial and error you mm -hmm. know just shoot a bunch of garbage and then start realizing why it doesn't work then when you've done a little bit of stuff come back and start reading and you know i'll tell you how to edit this stuff together 
And that's exactly what we learned in film school. It was so fascinating, age 38, leaving academia, or leave, yeah, leaving academia and going to film school at USC. And the master's program was three years, 50 students were all in the same class. And the first week, it was like, what textbooks are we supposed to get at the bookstore? None. Buy yourself a film camera and get out there and start shooting the films we're going to sign you. There were no textbooks other than in critical studies, but there were no textbooks. It was just get your camera, get to work, start shooting stuff, start editing, start learning. Experiential. It's a visceral medium. It's not an intellectual medium. So that's when it comes to communication, that's the number one kind of piece of advice to all folks that want to get better at it. It's just, it's experiential. You cannot sit there and read books on how to communicate and somehow think that you're, oh, I figured it all out by this one book, book told me how to do it. Nope. Got to get out there and just do it, do it, do it. I'm curious, just from your own personal opinion, with something like, um, something that's relevant like COVID-19, how do you think that's been affecting things like narrative structure or the communication of sciences? Um, how do you think? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's a big question, to be fair. I'm asking you quite a large and vague question, in a sense. I think it's just been really interesting as far as, and I'm sure you've seen this too, the politicization of science. And while science and politics have always been intertwined, I feel like with COVID-19, it's been more and more, specifically for the U.S., but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, okay, the first thing I will say on that gigantic topic, you're right, it is a a huge topic, Um, but this is all the day of reckoning for the science and medical communities. It is. Um, They're responsible for so much of this pain and suffering. Um, Trump on the surface has done a lot of horrible things, but the science and medical communities haven't listened. They haven't prepared for this sort of stuff. They haven't realized, again, track it back to Michael Crichton. He stood there in 1999, that keynote address, he said, the information society will be dominated by those most skilled at manipulating the media. He knew that stuff. He tried to get the science people to listen. Watch out for these people. If you combine that speech with Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death in 1985, you can see there were these people in Richard Lanham's book. That was one of the books I discovered when I was writing my book on the economics of attention. You know, it's kind of an obscure book, but it's really also these things tell you very clearly if you take a society and you crank up the amount of information and the rate at which it's being transmitted you're going to have this shift from substance to style you're going to have people unable to process the information anymore and your information generating organizations institutions are going to have a hard time that's what Crichton was trying to warn about watch out in the future people aren't going to give a damn about you sitting up there with all your facts they're going to shift to style they're going to start listening to voices at the superficial level of style that they they trust and they want to listen to and all your facts aren't going to mean a damn that's what it's been through i made flock of dodos in 2006 and sizzle in 2008 that came to the same conclusion i showed on camera these are the people that don't give a damn about you and your information what are you doing to get ready and the answer was nothing um at, at all different scales and some of the the well-intended things that they did try to do they didn't do it with enough aggressive savvy the pandemic preparedness program, things like that. Um, They put some stuff together, but they didn't insulate it so it couldn't be dismantled by people that came in, number one. And number two, they even, I mean, this is a whole separate lecture in my course, but when you look at that, we were talking about Robert McKee's book and arc plot structure, they made this, what they thought was a great movie, Contagion, which it's really a tragedy when you watch that movie because it's filled with so much relevant information to today's pandemic. You know, they they were prescient and, and, 
having all these elements in there, such as the virus jumps out of a bat in the wet markets of, of China. Um, so all these things that match exactly what went down today and um, lots of great pieces of information in there. But the narrative structure of the movie did not conform to arc plot structure, which is what you get with something like Jurassic Park and blockbuster movies. And so they wanted to make a movie that the whole public would connect with. And yet they, at the simplest of all levels, failed to make it the, you look at the five key characteristics of arc plot that Robert McKee goes through. A, a, a singular protagonist, protagonist, an active protagonist, linear sequence of events, complete causality, and the closed ending. Those are the five that I chose out that I've chose to pull out of the eight characteristics he's got, and I've gone through them over and over again in the books. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't follow those things, that movie Contagion. So what you had was the people who got in control of it with the best of intentions were driven by the information, the end, end, end dynamics, not by the ABT dynamics. That's what you get from the Hollywood screenwriters. You know, if you let them run the show, they will give you a story that works. Um, to that very point, really fascinating, is um, a program called, a project called Hollywood Health and Society that I've been a little bit of peripheral part a bit over the years. And in my course, we're gonna have Marty Kaplan as one of the guests in a couple of weeks that will speak about that. But that's a tremendous program in Hollywood. They long ago formed a partnership with the Centers Disease Control 20 years ago um, to take the CDC's public health fact sheets and distribute them among writers of primetime TV shows all through Hollywood, and then to help them with the knowledge and the information as they began to develop episodes around that. Not to browbeat them, not to tell them, you need to make an episode about this, that, but just to quietly give them the info and say, we're here if you're interested. And they've done, you know, they have a team of about 15 people now, and they've done so much to slowly work that sort of reliable information into the fabric of America. Um, that's a really tremendous model. You know, it's a far better model than documentaries like Al Gore's movie and things like that, where the scientists try and grab the microphone themselves. They just don't understand this narrative stuff. You have to yield to the people who've got the intuition and the experts like that. And it just doesn't work for scientists to make their own documentaries. I know, you know, I make two films that are okay, but they aren't powerful and brilliant the way that, that the really gifted Hollywood true storytellers know how to do that stuff. So, you know, it's a matter of respecting people for their different jobs. Sure. So my last question for you, and then I will let you go so you can get on with the rest of your day. This has been quite, quite enlightening and really, really nice. It's been very good. Thank you it's for been all. draining for me. This I'm just, so you know, sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to drain day. you. Oh, you for hours. oh <laughs> I'm so sorry. That is a shame. Yeah, no, my last question is just going to be what what are you currently working on? If you can tell us or if not, that's OK, yes. too. But yes, yes. Um, so the, the ABT framework is the be all and end all. And I've been doing the story circles training for the past five years. We've done it with, we did close to a hundred circles, more than 500 graduates, the whole program with about 25 different organizations, a lot of government agencies. And in doing it, we learned a bunch of stuff, but we kind of were running so fast. We didn't get much of a chance to pull together and synthesize so much of that stuff. And then the pandemic hit in March. We, you know, we had to, I had a whole year's worth of activities planned and suddenly we couldn't do anything social, which is what that's built around. So we had to um, suspend that. Uh, I had a wonderful month of vacation of surfing and tennis, didn't think about anything, thought the rest of my life would be fun and happy like that. And then after a month began to realize, wait a second, we need to do something with this. And 
um, a friend was talking about an online course he was going to do, and then all the bells went off and realized we could do the same thing. So we put together the ABT framework course. Uh, I outlined it in one weekend. We announced on Twitter on a Monday, and by Friday, it filled all 50 slots. Um, and it's a 10 one-hour sessions course. We've now are in our seventh round. We did it open for the first two times. Then some agencies got, got a hold or wanted to join in. So uh, Fish and Wildlife and now National Park Service the last two or three times. And now we're splitting one between them and the astronomers from Aura uh, Association of Universities for Research and Astronomy. And it's really, really fun. But what's it's turned into is much more than a course. It's a research incubator as we've been studying the ABT, how it works, and doing this one exercise called the ABT build that I do with everybody. Just take five minutes, you, you present your one sentence and but therefore statement. And then I began working on them critically as we've done for five years. But in this course where we do five of these every session, five different people, patterns began to emerge. Wait a second, over and over again, the best way to start this analysis of your ABT to try and strengthen it, to shape the narrative of it, is to go right to the center of it, to the, the source of contradiction, to the butt part, because that's what's at the heart of narrative is the contradiction. And so it's basically asking, what is the problem? And getting super clear that you've got a problem that is clear, it's a singular narrative and is just stated properly. And there's a whole bunch of details we've discerned about that. And now what's emerged out of all those, more than 200 of these ABT build sessions we've done with 200 different individuals is a three-step model now of how you dive into an ABT. This is the first thing you go to the, the but. Secondly, you go backwards to the and. Then thirdly, you go to the two moments, which are the but and the therefore moments. Those are the two turns that happen in an ABT. And out of that is a whole bunch of knowledge, which now I've written a book that um, I'm gonna self-publish in about three weeks or so, two or three weeks, called The Narrative Gym. And it's only 50 pages. It is going to be small and light and needs to be on everybody's desk because it's just mostly that three-step development process for the, the ABT. Um, and the, actually all the re reference material going with it is all going to be on a website. So it won't even have that. It's going to be so small and light. But it's the tool that everybody needs to have sitting there as they're working on a paper proposal project. Anything that has narrative structure at its core, which is everything. And this has been the... The thing we've been missing, you know, was just people say, well, where can we read about the ABT and, you know, in a practical form? Um, it, the Houston, we have a narrative book was the formal presentation, of the ABT, but it was kind of glommed up inside of an academic book because it's from an academic press. And so mm -hmm. that book was, you know, 65,000 words. This one is 15,000 words. And it's just practical getting right to here's how you do your ABT. Here's the three steps to strengthen it. Now get out there and start working with it. So. That is what's in the works in just a few weeks, and um, that it feels real good. That's uh, a decade of work on this ABT framework, seeing how popular and broad and powerful it is, and now pulling it together into a singular 